News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Anger continues to grow in Iran and all over the world over the death of a young woman who had been detained in that country by Iran's morality police. This is a 22-year-old woman who died last week while in the custody of Iran's morality police. Masa Amini was arrested for allegedly improperly wearing a hijab. And police claim she died of a heart attack and was not mistreated, but her family, well, they don't believe that's what happened. Tamina Sadegi is the Iran protest organizer here in Vancouver and joined our Raji Sohal on the weekend show, discussed her own experiences with Iran's morality police. We went to the park, I remember. My daughter was uh, just a young baby, and my uh, my headscarf was, you know, in the middle of my head. And then morality police came to me, and they threatened me. They, if, pull your hair, you know, like your scarf down, or otherwise we're going to pin it to your head. That happened so many times. One time I was standing waiting for a taxi, and my, you know, like uh, Islamic dress code was not long enough as they wanted, and then they spit at me, and they swore at me, and they threatened me, like, you go change your clothes, otherwise, you know, you're going to end up in jail. That is Tamina Sadegi, who was the protest organizer here over the weekend that you saw in downtown Vancouver. But to talk more about this, we're also joined now by Cynthia Farahat, who's an Egyptian-American author of The Secret Apparatus, columnist, political analyst, and counterterrorism expert. Cynthia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What do you see happening in Iran right now? What I see happening in Iran is people are sick and tired of the uh, Iranian regime. And also, it's not a coincidence that it coincides with talks about the uh, revival of the Iran nuclear deal with uh, the U.S. government. Uh, The same thing happened in in 2015 when there were talks about the Iran nuclear deal with President Barack Obama's administration. So that is a pattern of behavior. Uh, Iranians are sending a message to the world that they do not want to continue to be held hostage by these eschatological mullahs who believe that it's the role to bring about the end of times. That's actually a quote. So that is not only a rebellion against their oppression, that's also a call for help from, for world leaders in the West to support the Iranian people and not their oppressors. This has become quite organic, hasn't it? And it seems to be growing and growing. It will continue to absolutely grow. I have lived personally under dictatorship and it was a severe police state. I was under surveillance for a decade and uh, my life was threatened 10 to 50 times a day. I would get death threats. And I understand completely what they feel. Sometimes you have to make the choice between living free or dying. And that is a very painful and agonizing choice to make, especially when you feel isolated and do not have alliance and you don't have allies and sympathizers in Western government. It's absolutely atrocious and a horrific place to be. Can we talk as well about what has what is different about this situation is that it also involves Iran's Kurdish minority here, and that is something that they are now also saying this is why they would they they are they're kind of talking about their independence as well. 
Backers have been also extremely oppressed by the Iranian regime. The Sunni minority has been oppressed. Uh, the, there is an underground also Christian uh, minority. Uh, so uh, this is this is an all-out rebellion against the Mullah regime in Iran. Um, I have been told in 2006 uh, by someone uh, in uh, associated with uh, the U.S. government that only 27% of Iranians actually uh, are fanatical Muslims. The rest of the country is absolutely sick and tired of this regime. So the Kurds and other minorities are so, are certainly joining uh, this overwhelming rebellion and it will continue to escalate. How do you see that escalating then? What do you think is going to happen? So what is happening is people will continue uh, to be encouraged to go out and uh, risk their lives to show their rebellion against the Iranian regime. Now, the fear is that on their part, the mullahs and the paramilitary, the besieged, will will continue to engage in murder and uh, mayhem, and it could uh, and it we could we could have a lot of uh, we could have very high death toll uh, because they are com- they ha- they feel that they are immune from uh, repercussions. They're immune. Who is punishing them? They get what? How are they going to get punished by uh, getting a, a deal and a trillion dollars by twenty? 20- 30 that's 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 so they feel invincible so it could actually be a mass massacre uh, uh that uh, that is about to happen if western leaders do not start to come out in support of these protesters it, this one is different too though isn't it because it does involve these are women who are speaking up and this is not something that we have really seen before like this women are um Extremely, uh, Iran is a gender apartheid state. Uh, women are severely abused in this country, and they are absolutely sick and tired and fed up of this. And this reminds me of Egypt in 1919. Women were burning their heads carved in the street, but because it was a protest against a uh, against the British. Uh, government and against the Egyptian government, they were extremely civilized at the time. So there were no injuries, there were no, there was no violence. And actually, women in Egypt after that completely gave up any uh, uh, wearing the, the hijab or any headscarf. So that has happened before. And we are seeing it happen again. And when women are taking the street, this encourages men. Uh, because it, it 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 just it just makes them feel protective and want to act morally and courageously. So it's incredible to see, and I get very emotional watching them because I know exactly what they feel. Okay, and your prediction for this is that we are going to see more of this. But at what point do they need to hear that support, as you said, from Western governments? How critical will that be? I can't think of anything more critical. It's, this could stop a future massacre. 
by the uh, Iranian government. The, so the Iranian government, Western government need to come out and say, if you do not stop cracking on these protesters violently, you are going to face international repercussions. You, you're going to face more sanctions. The Iran deal has to be completely stopped and halted. So there has to be a reaction or we are going to be facing a mass murder. Cynthia, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Cynthia Farahat is an Egyptian-American author of The Secret Apparatus, the columnist, political analyst, counterterrorism expert, talking about the protests in Iran, which are unique. These are different. These are women rising up unhappy, and they seem to be gaining steam out there. And you saw the hundreds of people who turned out in downtown Vancouver yesterday, too, to raise awareness for this. And I'm sure there will be more to come on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about tourism. When is it too much? Well, when it starts to affect whether or not locals can find a place to live. That's what's going on in many communities. Our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, you know, apart from the pandemic years, we've really seen the tourist industry within BC see major, major growth. Um, For some, that's uh, because of the social media effect in great part. You know, that's people sharing the images online, people adding that to their local bucket list. I know I'm affected by that a lot. So I've seen a lot of places in the province just because of word of mouth and people sharing photos of it. Well, this is happening a lot in Ukululet and it's bringing a lot of people into town. They're looking to rent places, and now Euclid is pushing back. They are the latest BC community to clamp down on vacation rentals. So they've got a new bylaw, and here's what it says. They're going to limit bed and breakfasts to three rooms per building with a maximum of two guests per room. Units are not allowed to have their own kitchenette, which is why a lot of people try and get these places. Yeah. They want to be able to make food. Uh, instead, you can only have a microwave, a toaster, and a coffee maker. And then the other rule is that the property's primary resident is also required to live in the bed and breakfast. And there has to be an entrance, a main entrance that the guests have to go through rather than uh, straight into the unit on their own. So basically, this to me sounds like a traditional bed and breakfast. And I remember in the 90s as a kid going to bed and breakfasts in small inns like this on the island, you know, on Tofino, main island. Maybe the quaint uh, German retired host couple has two or three bedrooms to offer. And then in the morning, you eat a little basic breakfast with them. It was really adorable. Airbnbs, on the other hand, have gone in the opposite direction. Many of them are owned by these corporations and companies, and they don't have any of that personal touch. And one of the problems that's been happening on the island is that folks are like, people are coming here to party. They're coming here to party. It's loud. There's too many of them. And they are starting to overrun the charm of a local community. And now, Simi, I get there are going to be people who hear this and say, well, you know what? If people want to come, they need places to stay. And if they want to stay in those corporate Airbnbs that are run by the companies, like, let them. But I'm going to push back against that, too, and say that at some point, locals deserve to have their community. They deserve to have their community operate in the way that it has been for a long time, where you know the folks around you and where you're not rattled by parties every single weekend. Right. It's a, this is an interesting debate because... Um for when you're driving out the locals, when they don't have a, when they can't buy, when they can't afford to buy a place because investors are snapping up the properties to rent out as Airbnbs, right? That's when you start to run into problems. And there are people who say it's my house. I should be able to rent it out if I want to. 
Yeah. And there's even people who go further than that. Like I know people, there's people in my community who are young, they couldn't afford to purchase in Vancouver. So they actually bought land on the island and they had this goal of creating Airbnbs where there were more than three units and where they were operated in a more like efficient way and there's no personal touch. So they were, I know decent people that were trying to do this. Now they're going to be hitting some roadblocks. And I think part of the motivation for people to do that kind of thing is because of the prices in Vancouver. So well, sure. I do understand that side of things. Oh, I absolutely do. Because if you can't generate revenue from your home in some way, home ownership is just out of the realm of possibility for so many people. Yeah. On the other hand, Simi, I hope we see more of these kinds of measures of pushing back against Airbnb throughout uh, BC because there are so uh, many wonderful towns that I miss visiting because they've lost that charm. I will tell you, though, I think Airbnb is doing this to themselves. I, th- I think they're reaching a point where, um, and I've been reading about this too, where they're having problems because people are going, well, what is the value here? You know, if they're, if you go to an Airbnb and you're, you've got a whole list of things that you have to do before you leave, right? Do the laundry, run this, do that. Um, and they're tacking on these huge cleaning fees and all these other things. I know a lot of people who are thinking, you know what, I might as well just go stay at a hotel. So I think Airbnb has its own issues too. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. A cleanup is underway on so many parts of the East Coast today. The federal government saying that they are going to help out with that. The Minister of Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair, said they are sending in a Canadian Army reconnaissance team to work with provincial authorities to find out how much damage was done, what they can do to help. Let's talk more about this storm and the impact it had. Joining us now is Anthony Farnell, our Global News Chief Meteorologist. Hi, Anthony. Hello, good morning to you. Well, let's talk about what it's like there. How historic was this storm? Uh, I've been in a few of these hurricanes, and, and I will tell you, this is a pretty bad one. This is uh, worse than Dorian in far, as far as the amount of communities and real estate that those strong winds occupied. And that, I think, is the, the big problem, is that uh, there's power out still to hundreds of thousands, and there are so many trees down in different communities, different neighborhoods, and then roads that are impassable, that it's going to need a, a very large coordinated effort, which I think has already started. Since yesterday morning, we've seen line crews working hard. Our hotel just got power back this morning. So there is progress being made. The uh, number in the dark has basically reduced in half since the heart of the storm. But still, we're now going on 48, 60 hours without power. And, and that becomes a problem for for those that are looking for a hot meal for gasoline for for some essentials that we all take for granted yeah i've seen some of those lineups for gas today particularly in nova scotia and they just look crazy so you are in sydney there anthony what was the impact like there well, it was uh, just a devastation to the tree canopy. Some of these 100 to 150-year-old trees have come down uh, basically every single block. As we go street to street, uh, they've fallen on power lines, of course, and, and that's the big problem is trying to remove the stumps and, and the trunks that in some cases are, are so large that uh, even the power crews don't have big enough chainsaws. So they need to call in backup from the forestry service, get some heavy machinery in, and, and then you replace each pole but that takes time and uh in our hotel there's there's about 100 workers that have come in from as far as toronto and and southern quebec they were here ahead of the storm they've been out in 16 hour shifts and then i see them sleep for five hours and then have breakfast and then go right back out so they're working hard uh, and they said they're going to be doing that that shift uh, until everybody's back online which is going to take 
possibly one to two weeks for, for some of the more remote areas. Oh, wow. Okay. And speaking of that, so you're in Nova Scotia, though, but it sounds like parts of Newfoundland, also the West Coast there, uh, got a lot of damage sustained, particularly we saw the pictures from Porto Basque. Yeah, that was uh, just incredible to see. And, and that was a lot of storm surge and then the waves. When you have a, a, a storm like Fiona, which was tropical, and then it started to, be, to become what we call a hybrid and then post-tropical, but it never really lost much strength. The wind field expanded out as it made landfall, and that moved a lot of water. A lot of the Atlantic was in motion, and the first thing it hit was places like Porto Basque, and you just saw some of these homes that were up on cliffside, yeah. and they were washed away, and that is heartbreaking considering that they've been there for 70, 80 years and, and haven't seen uh, these type of conditions and, and there weren't really the evacuation orders for that area that, that probably should have been in place with a storm like this. I know, just more questions about that. Anthony, thank you so much for the update this morning. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate that. Anthony Farnell is our Global News Chief Meteorologist. He is in Sydney, Nova Scotia, as the cleanup has begun on parts of the East Coast there. The destruction has been so uh, damaging in so many areas, particularly that that West Coast there of Newfoundland, the Porto Basque area and along there. And he talked about, you know, in Nova Scotia too, where huge trees just down block by block. And now the federal government is stepping in to help out to get the cleanup going, uh, power getting restored. We'll keep you posted on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, coming up in this hour of the show, we are going to be continuing our series on the housing crisis in Metro Vancouver and what Vancouver's major mayoral candidates have to say about that. Kennedy Stewart is our guest. One of the other issues around that, too, has to do with donations to campaigns in this municipal election, a lot of them coming from the developer community. And that does not sit well with people out there, including some municipal candidates. In fact, a group of councillors and candidates from municipalities across the province, actually, got together yesterday to talk about and review the potential impact of developers on municipal elections and how to maybe change things moving forward. Joining us now to talk more about this is Breen Ouellette, who's a COPE candidate for Vancouver City Council. Breen, thanks for being here. Thank you. Can you tell me a bit more about this meeting? How did it come about? Well, it's come about because of a couple of uh, different uh, occurrences in the last month. Um, earlier this month, Cope, uh, Concord Pacific sent uh, a total of $3,000 in checks from three different people made out to my party, COPE, the Coalition of Progressive Electors. And, uh, but the checks came in an envelope addressed from Concord with postage paid by a commercial postage printer. So traceable back to the company that, that printed it. Um, and uh, we found this odd that we'd have three checks from three different people coming in a company envelope. So we reported it to Elections BC and we also let Dan Fumano know over at the Vancouver Sun and he investigated. And Concord told the Sun that it believes in and supports the civic election process and that it encourages its consultants, vendors, and friends to participate in the civic election process by donating to some or all parties of their choice. But part of that encouragement involves uh, those checks being sent to Concord first, and then they bundle them in envelopes and forward them on to the offices of the parties uh, that they're intended for. Um, exactly what Concord uh, tried to do with COPE, but we've uh, refused to accept that money. Now, I'm a lawyer, and in law, uh, one might call that undue influence. 
And uh, the reason is, is this. Just imagine that your boss or a high-paying client or a person you rely on told you that you should be more involved in the election and that they want you to make a donation to a party of your choice. But don't send it directly to the party. Send it to me and I'll review it along with other checks that people like you are sending to me. I'm going to review them all and then I'll send them. I'll pass them along. You know, right. you'd be asking yourself a few questions. Yeah. Right. Because this has come up, right, for elections in particular in Vancouver. But it sounds like other municipalities are worried about this, too. So have you talked to other candidates in other communities about this? Yeah. And that's what the press conference was yesterday. A number of candidates from across uh, B.C. Uh, went to Metrotown and we held a press conference to, uh, to to let people know that this really concerns us for a number of reasons. I mean, in the in the in the most innocent version of this, you've got undue influence where uh, people uh, feel pressure to to make a donation, and they'll be thinking, you know, should I be donating a lot? How am I going to be compared to to like my competition that are also making these donations? Who's the right party to to donate to? Which one which one's going to affect my contract positively versus negatively? So it's really that's that's and that is the the least. Uh, uh, contentious uh, potential. Right. The uh, on the other end of the scale, um, there could be money changing hands. This could be just blatant uh, skirting of the law. And the only way we'll find out is if uh, Elections BC conducts a forensic audit uh, of the uh, accounts of the individuals and companies involved to determine if something truly nefarious is happening. Right, because the law says that, I mean, we, everybody thinks that we got rid of all this, right, back in 2017, that we got rid of corporate and union donations to any kind of election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 2017 was supposed to be the last big money election. Uh, but, um, you know, like, like many uh, laws, uh, there are going to be some people who try to evade them. And, you know, in the case of property developers, uh, they're, they're encouraged to donate huge money to city campaigns because uh, cities have the power to dramatically increase land values with the stroke of a pen. Uh, rezoning generates land value increases. And if a, don't, if a developer is the largest donor of a political party or candidate, then that developer is likely to have significant influence over those people if they're elected. Right. So then, Breen, though, how many candidates or parties do, though, what you did and said that money back? Because, you know, as we've seen in the other big stories throughout this election have been people actually courting that money. Yeah. Uh, well, so um, Colleen Hardwick was uh, at the press conference yesterday. Uh, I did not see anybody else from Vancouver. Um, and uh, we know from the Sun's reporting earlier this month that um, two of the three individuals whose checks were sent to COPE have also previously contributed to uh, Ken Sims' ABC party. But uh, when asked for comment, instead of denouncing the big money in elections, uh, an ABC spokesperson simply said that the donations were legal and fully compliant. So um, there definitely are parties that are speaking out, but there are parties who are making excuses. And then there are parties that just aren't saying anything at all, which right. uh, makes me wonder what it's going to look like when their donor lists are released. So then, Breen, what is the way around this? How do we put in place a law? Because I think there's an appetite for that. How do we put in place a law that also deals with situations like this? Well, you know, there are two two options and they're kind of extremes. But, you know, 
if you really want to stop this, the first option would be to update the law so that anyone who contributes to a political party may be subjected to a highly invasive audit that uh, potentially, if it starts to find the wrong thing, it could be extended to their business associates, family and friends. Uh, you know, not unsimilar to uh, to a Canada Revenue Agency audit, but this would be an extremely expensive option. It would be very invasive. I don't think a lot of people would have an appetite for that. The second option is to eliminate all private contributions to political parties and candidates and just create a public system of, of uh, election campaign funding for each of the parties. It would be far simpler. It would be less expensive to administrate than a complicated audit system or even the current system of private donations. And it would level the playing field so that all parties were competing on policy instead of dollars. Right. And other, other jurisdictions have done it, so we could do it too. How would you determine, though, who gets how much funding? Well, you'd, I mean, it, what I'm saying is that an established party should get um, a specific amount of money that I think people would have to talk about and, and the province would have to talk about to determine what made sense. And uh, new parties, uh, you know, they'd have to prove themselves. Uh, you know, the easiest way would be that when they submit their nomination papers, they have to pass a threshold of nominators. It might be 5,000 people have to nominate them the first time out of the gate so that they can uh, receive the, the financing. Right. Interesting ideas. Breen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That's Breen Alad, who's a COPE candidate for Vancouver City Council, but was one of a, a group of municipal you know council candidates from across Metro Vancouver who yesterday had a press conference to talk about their concern when it comes to the way donations are being made by people in the development community two different candidates and parties and campaigns across Metro Vancouver. Now, the way out of that, the kind of the circumstances there that Breen described, and I'm not sure there's an appetite for more taxpayer dollars going to be donated towards candidates and elections. What about you? Would that be better for you, do you think? If we said no donations of any kind from private individuals to parties, we'll just taxpayer fund with certain parameters in place. Is that the way to finally get this money out of elections? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're getting to crunch time. Municipal elections are less than a month away. Just as a reminder, we are going to the polls on October the 15th. That is right across BC. You will be electing mayors, councillors, trustees. It's an important day, so mark that on your calendar. And of course, one of, if not the biggest issue for communities around the province is housing. We want to be able to find housing. We want to be able to afford housing. So as part of our continuing coverage in this year's elections, we have turned our attention to the Vancouver mayoral race. We have been speaking with the five major candidates for mayor and talking about that huge issue of housing. So, so far, we have heard from four of the candidates. We've heard about their plans or lack thereof or what they're going to do about housing. Well, we're down to our final candidate this morning. We are hearing from Kennedy Stewart, the mayoral candidate for Forward Together Vancouver, and he joins us now. Thank you for being here. Hey, Sabri, how are you today? I am good. Thank you. So, okay, so our focus is all about housing in this discussion that we've been having. So let me start by asking you then, what is your plan for housing? Yeah, so uh, over the last four years as mayor, I've made a, a huge effort on housing. Uh, I inherited a... Um, we were approving about 4,000 units of housing uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, just last year alone, we approved almost 9,000 units of housing. So we've doubled the amount of housing. But what I'm most proud of is that we've changed the type of housing. 
So uh, it used to be that we were approving about 75% uh, very expensive condos, but now it's over 50% rental or social. So six out of 10 cranes now that you're seeing around the city will be for rental or social housing, where in the past, it would be almost eight out of 10 that were, uh, were condos. So we wanna continue that way. Uh, and this is all in, in the midst of COVID and with a very divided council here in Vancouver. So uh, with the new Forward Together team, I plan to triple uh, the amount of housing uh, we have, uh, will approve or enable. That will be 220,000 units over the next 10 years, which, which is a lot of housing. But to keep that ratio of uh, really 60% rental or social housing, and that's, that's uh, housing for workers, for families, for seniors, where before we were really only building housing uh, for rich people. So, um, so that is the overall plan. And how are we going to do it? We're going to do it through uh, pre-zoning. Uh, so we've approved uh, the Broadway plan, for example, which will bring 30,000 new homes to that corridor. Uh, there are many large sites around the city. If you think of uh, the, the old St. Paul's Hospital site, if you think of the Molson site by the Broad Street Bridge, uh, Jericho, Lands, uh, Sanok, uh, underdeveloped SkyTrain stations, there is uh, those projects as well as uh, bringing affordable housing uh, program for uh, for the first time in a generation for the middle class. Okay, but let's talk about how you get that done. You mentioned the divided yeah. council of the last four years. Then if you don't have your councillors all with you that get elected, how do you get all this done? Yeah, well, I'm running uh, with a slate of uh, six fantastic candidates who are all dedicated to this program. And so I think this is really a choice uh, for voters. If, if, uh, if they want to continue with this work and accelerate it, uh, they need to vote for my, my whole team. Uh, I managed to do a lot with, uh, again, there's six parties on Vancouver City Council right now, and, and hurting them has been very, very difficult. And, and under those circumstances, I've still managed to double the amount of uh, housing that we've approved and shift it to the right kind of housing. Okay, what do you say to people then who say, okay, we're building this, but they're not crazy about the direction the city has taken in the last four years. Uh, what about community amenities? What about more community centers and parks, the things that make a neighborhood a neighborhood? Yeah, and that's why, for example, the Broadway plan is uh, so important. Uh, that plan, uh, you know, is for 500 square blocks around the new uh, the new Broadway subway line. And that comes with over a billion dollars in amenities. So you'll have uh, parks and community space, uh, new libraries along that way. So, I mean, that is what you have to do is come up with a, with a plan. And then as you build uh, the housing, uh, you also build the amenities. So uh, the other thing is we have to get the province to kick in to make sure they're uh, refurbishing or building new schools. Uh, and there are there is a lot of movement on that as well, as well as uh, investments from senior levels of government, which I've also managed to secure uh, over a billion dollars in investment in social housing uh, over the last uh, over my term as mayor. What about rezoning? We've often heard the term during this campaign about how 80% of the city is single family zoning. Yeah. What do you think if anything should be changed and are we concentrating too much of the building and high rises in certain areas? Yep, you're absolutely right. Uh, I managed to pass uh, through this council my program called Making Home, which allows uh, single-family homeowners uh, to build up to six uh, strata units on their lots now. And so that will be, uh, and that's really in the part of the city where we don't see that kind of development, and that, that is coming online in the spring. But you're absolutely right. Uh, along major transit corridors and uh, the streets that are just adjacent to transit corridors, we need to build more density. 
uh, while, um, and, and to do pre-zoning, which is to have one big public hearing uh, for an area or for a different type of housing, uh, and then really get on and let the uh, the builders and the city staff work out the rest of the details. But that's one thing that we've heard about from several of the other parties that we've talked to, cutting red tape, making it easier to get projects built in this city. You've been mayor for four years. Why hasn't it been fixed? What would you do differently? Oh, we've made remarkable progress. Uh, we, uh, I appointed uh, the city manager as a the leader of a task force that has been making uh taking a side through red tape. So for example, now, if you have a, a simple, um, a simple uh, um, uh, work that you're doing on your home, uh, now our permitting is down to two weeks for most of that. So a lot of our licenses have been automated. Uh, and I think people will be pleasantly surprised when they, you know, compared to the past, after the work of this task force, uh, how fast we've uh, made many of the uh, many of the operations of the city. Now, were you just talking about streamlining the public hearing process too? That's right. That's what we're doing. Oh, we seem to have lost Kennedy Stewart there. Do we still I, have you? Oh, there you are. Yep, I'm still here. Okay, sorry. So go ahead. Were you talking about streamlining the public hearing process? Because that seems like something over the last four years we saw a lot of projects and discussion and things get bogged down in that process. Yeah, that was mainly to do with council. I mean, they kept pushing stuff off and pushing stuff off while I was pushing it forward. But uh, my plan is for pre-zoning which is essentially uh, you you have a, a big public hearing at the beginning to set a general direction for a neighborhood or for a type of housing. We did this on commercial land, for example, C2 rezonings, we've already done pre-zoning. Then after you've done the pre-zone and made the decision of what should be in an area, then you let the uh, the builders and the civil servants figure out the details. And that is uh, the only way forward as I can see it. So we've asked this question of everybody then it gets to this point where it's getting crunch time i think during the election yep. why should people vote for you what would be different from the last four years moving to another four with kennedy stewart yeah i mean i've made a huge effort over the last four years to improve housing it really was uh, you know when i was a kid uh, my family uh, went bankrupt and we lost our home so I, I know what it's like to live with housing insecurity and it stresses me out so that many families in Vancouver are facing the same situation. So switching from luxury condos to building rent, rental uh, and uh, and social housing has been a key part of what I've been able to do. Uh, with a majority uh, on council, I'll be able to accelerate this and, and triple the amount we're building. That's also doubling the, the number of co-op homes on uh, on uh, city-owned land. Uh, we're well on our way to, to doing that. Uh, and getting the federal and provincial investment we need to uh, get folks off the street. So, I mean, there's been a lot of progress over the four years, but I, I really need my team with me uh, to continue and accelerate this uh, this change. And what do you say to people who are concerned about donations that have been made during this campaign season? Obviously, you've had to address this, people donating to your campaign who are big-time developers. People are worried that that's just too much influence on the process. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was the first candidate to disclose every single person that's donated to me. And you'll see on that list that we follow all and exceed actually all the elections British Columbia rules. Uh, the maximum an individual can donate is uh, $1,250. Uh, but our average donation to my campaign is $175. So this is how uh, this is my fifth election. <laughs> so I've disclosed, you know, as MP. Uh, for for two terms and now a second run as mayor, uh, all my donations have been uh, disclosed proactively and I'll continue to do that. Right. But is there too much developer influence? Are you relying too much on getting those who have a lot of money at stake in this election to donate to you? 
Yeah, if you look at the list of my donors, which is available on, on my website, you'll see the vast, vast majority of, of folks are, are uh, you know, individuals that are giving $200, $300. And again, the maximum anybody can donate is $1,250. You'll see that I've given that and, and, uh, and uh, you know, some of my family members have given that because that's really you reach out to your local networks and you, you try to get folks to uh, donate and support your campaign. Uh, and really, again, the best way, you know, sunshine is the is the best uh, transparency you can have. So if you look on my website, you'll see all, all the donors and, and most of them are very, very small below the 1250. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Kennedy Stewart running for another term as mayor of Vancouver with the party Forward Together Vancouver. That's different from last time when he ran as an independent this time, as you heard him say, he's got a party. He's got other council candidates that he would like to see elected. So that's it. You've heard from now the five major mayoral candidates for mayor of Vancouver. You've heard from that on their housing plans. What did you think? Simi at cknw.com if you'd like to weigh in. Uh, we'll see what happens. October 15th is voting day. Don't forget to mark that on your calendar. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking a lot about what is out there in the housing market these days. And StatsCan's latest data tells us that multi-generational living is becoming more common. And our Raji Sohal has been diving into that topic for us. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, since we talked about it, actually, I got a lot of responses from listeners. And very interestingly, a lot of the naysayers were people who hadn't tried it because they felt they knew that about themselves, that they needed to live very far from family and certainly not in the same house. But then an overwhelming amount of the comments that I heard from people who do live in three generations to a household, they tell me that they really enjoy the experience. And I want to play a clip from someone, a father of three, who along with his wife, they say they do it for way more than economic reasons. And their situation is unique because they lived with parents for many years on two separate occasions. And then recently living are living back on their own in their own house that they own outright. I love my parents twice and the first time the experience was okay it had its challenges the second time around after we had children that's when the experience was actually a lot better i think i was much more mature i had children so i had a better understanding of what they went through in terms of of raising me as a child so you know having that understanding of where what their experiences were kind of being able to relate to them in that sense made it a much better experience for me personally and what about for the children well, it's, it's excellent for the children because they get to be with their grandparents. And, you know, grandparents always want to, you know, tend to want to hang around with their grandchildren a lot, take them places, share experiences with them, because they're no longer the, the primary caregiver. Like, they're in a much better, it's a much better scenario for them, in my opinion. So they get to kind of enjoy the fun aspect of parenting. And what do you think it's like for the grandparents in the house? It makes life less mundane, I should say. They get to have these experiences with their grandkids, and you know, it, it replaces that uh, when they used to have, you know, have their own children raise them. It kind of replaces that for them, and it it just makes life a bit more exciting. There's there's more, you know, uh, more going on in the house. It's just not it's just not the two of them together. And then now you have moved into your own home at some point with your own family. Ultimately, what are you missing about multi-generational living? I'm just missing more of the day-to-day -day contact. Just another person to speak with, someone that I trust that I can um, have, you know, deeper conversations with, 
someone that I can learn from. It's it's nice having more people in the house because, yeah, it just keeps things more exciting. What do you see the future of multi-generational living like for you? Well, my parents are getting on in years. And so we will be living together in the near future. Like I think, I think within the next three to four years, we will be living together again. Um, cause you know, there's, there's no way I would put them in a home or, or a retirement facility. Um, I'd rather take that responsibility on of, of helping them out in the later stages of their life. And I want them to be around, you know, especially my children. Um, so my children can experience their grandparents for as long as possible. You know, Raja, it's so interesting because he's clearly planning ahead there. And I think the problem that a lot of families run into sometimes is that circumstances force them into these decisions, not that they are looking ahead saying, hey, this is something we should think about. Yeah. And for people for whom it's forced upon really quickly um, because of circumstances, they might find themselves really grappling with how to make it work in the house. And, and there he was describing a very rich intergenerational experience. And I was talking to some builders because I was curious about how do builders even plan for this? How do they design a home around this? And the, everyone I talked to told me that they're designing more of these kinds of homes with three generations in mind, including Bryn Davidson. He co-owns Lane Fab, and he says that the right compromise might have to actually be the Lane House, which is where one family lives in the main house and maybe the kids and the grandkids live in the Lane House or vice versa. But he actually wants to see policy around these kinds of builds standardized across the province. When you look at laneway houses, I mean, those have been really an amazing tool for letting families redevelop and and add more housing on their existing properties. And some cities like Vancouver and and the city of North Vancouver have really good, you know, laneway house policies in terms of how you go through the approval process. Um, You have other cities like the District of North Vancouver or New Westminster, where the approval process is actually pretty terrible. And so I think what I would really love to see is for the province to do what California did, and just allow laneway houses across the entire province so that we're not having this kind of mishmash of different rules in every city. I'd say the second thing we could do is allow more stratification because currently, if you have a laneway house, it's not allowed to be sold separately from the main house. Um, and so if you're a young couple and you have siblings and you're trying to figure out how to build your own equity, if you're trying to deal with issues of inheritance, all of those things become really complicated when you have, say, three dwellings on one title. Um, so if we could just simplify things and have a fourplex with four you know, titles, um, a lot of those generational issues start to become a little bit easier. You know, that's, that's interesting, Raji, but the problem is like with these laneway houses, though, is some of them aren't big enough. You know, it depends yeah. on the size of your lot. We looked into doing it at, at my house for exactly that, like maybe some multi-generational living on our property. And you know what? I'm not going, you can't ask people to move into something and build a family in something that's 700 square feet. You just can't do it. Yeah. So I know some people who have done it and they were hoping that their parents could eventually move into the lane house and that they would take over the main house. Well, the parents were too used to their kind of yeah. lifestyle and they couldn't <laughs> downgrade. <laughs> Understandably, right? Totally, right. You think you've worked all your life and then you want, I'm sorry, you want me to move into the 700 square foot house? 
Sure. I totally feel that it's hard to go back the other way, but I think for, for younger people, it not for all of them. Is it that hard to stay small and continue small? I think that a lot of people in my generation, for example, were used to that. And I think this upcoming election is going to be super interesting because we are looking at the future of single family zones. And there's a pretty big spread of what different parties are offering but with increasing supply on every candidate's agenda, I think, okay, how are you going to do that? You have to start looking at policy changes for how families can share living arrangements. Yeah, making more room. Everybody has a slightly different plan, though, from what we have heard over the last five days. And nothing happens overnight. You know the way things go. Yep. <laughs> Nothing happens overnight. And we haven't heard too many nuts and bolts. I'm talking about nitty gritty. This is exactly how our plan would work. And I think that they're sticking to more blanket statements on purpose. Right. Uh, they just want to make sure that they're <laughs> grabbing those votes in time. Now, laneway houses are very big um, in Vancouver, but what are they like where you are? You're in North Vancouver. I'm seeing them pop up a lot more in the last couple of years, but I also hear how because of building costs being so high, people have uh, yes. held off on their plans to make lane houses. But I increasingly hear that uh, people who are buying a new house, they want to make sure that they can get that laneway house in at some point. So it's in my city in North Van, it's pretty easy to have it done. But the district of North Vancouver is another thing altogether. Oh, yes. Let's not get started on the differences there. Raji, thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. That is our Raji Silha. If you want to weigh in on the issue of multi-generational housing, by all means, get in touch. Simi at cknw.com. Is that something that you've considered? How would it work for your family? I think it's a great idea. It's just difficult finding a space that fits for everybody, isn't it? Yeah, talk to me about that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, this next story is just so cool. There's the hit EA Sports FIFA video game. If you've seen the latest edition, then you know what a huge influence our region has had on it. FIFA 23 was developed primarily at EA Vancouver, and it's beautiful because it recognizes the history, heritage, and culture of the Musqueam. It included artwork and assets from Musqueam artists in their latest edition. So how did this happen? It's amazing when you check out the game. Wayne Sparrow is with us now, Musqueam Chief, to talk more about this. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Boy, this is so beautiful. You must be so happy with how it turned out. Well, I'm so proud and, uh, of uh, how it turned out uh, when we first got the phone call um, to uh, be part of it. Uh, it was exciting, but to see in the finished product was I'm really proud of what our uh, staff and our community had done. Yeah, how did this happen, and why Musqueam? Um, we, one of our council members, uh, Gordon Grant, with Truth and Reconciliation, EA uh, Sports, was looking for someone, and uh, they made contact with Musqueam and asked Musqueam if they would, would want to be part of it. And um, our recreation coordinator uh, came to our council member that was the representative, Gordon Grant, and uh, came brought to council, and we said 100% that we wanted to do it. So uh, uh, we were excited about it, and... Uh, uh, it came to fruition after that. I mean, you've got a deep love of soccer there at Musqueam, don't you? Oh, yeah. Our, our our community is huge in soccer. And when you look at the video game, it was so proud of the past work that Chief Ernest Campbell did with the 2010 Olympics because in the video game, it, it shows our, our soccer fields. You know, in our community, we have uh, teams from 5 and under, 7 and under, uh, all the way to 16 and under men and women's team that travel around to the 
local First Nations tournaments over on Vancouver Island and Fraser Valley. So, you know, back in the day, 15, 20 years ago, we were just practicing on uh, pieces of grass that we didn't have nothing here. So uh, 2010 uh, gave us the legacy. We built the soccer fields, and now it's part of the uh, video game, which is exciting. It is so exciting. Okay, so what was this process like then? So how was everybody involved in this? Well, there was a, I have to big big shout out to uh, Monday Creative. They uh, spent the time. Um, this was uh, it took a lot of time doing it. Uh, we wanted to make sure we included everyone. So Monday Creative will work along with Gordon, uh, our council member. Uh, we had elders, our youth, our artists, all there. So they they spent a lot of time to find out who we are, what it meant to us, and you know, with the, the language, the culture everything so they 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 spent the time and a big shout out to them for um um taking that they could have very easily just met with a very few people and came out with a game but they sat for hours with uh with our community members and our leaders down here in Musqueam so uh it was a long process but uh everybody was engaged and uh they did a wonderful job and so what was it absolutely important to get into the game when you talk to the artists and the community what did they want to make sure was reflected there I think our culture, um, you know, is the main thing that we've always strived for from our, our leadership to let the general public know who we are, where we come from, uh, you know, uh, and then to see our art and especially our young artists that had the opportunity here. It wasn't our uh, um, um, main artists like that we have here. So our young people got engaged and uh, and then be able to see our language on the on the jerseys. The exciting thing about it is we get those jerseys for our native tournaments now. So uh, we're very excited about that. Our, our young kids from the five and under, all our youth teams, when we travel around to the tournaments next year, we're going to be wearing the jerseys that are in the video game. So, you know, to, I think it does a lot for our young people to see um, the opportunity and, and, and uh, opportunities they have in life from our um our leaders that uh, push for a lot of these things under reconciliation. You know what? I was just thinking that too. Like imagine now being a, a young child and seeing, you know, your culture reflected in this video game. I mean, that that's a real game changer, I think. I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, like uh, I, I have to, I have to uh, stress, I've been the, the chief here for 10 years, but as a young guy uh, that was stressed from all of our leaders. Um, so you know, now to see all of these things coming uh, now uh, is so exciting. And our young kids should uh, uh, have a bright future of, um, you know, being inclusive and, and part of this uh, community. And the exciting thing is everybody around the world plays this game, right? So, uh, you know, we talked about the 2010 Olympics, what it brought to our communities uh, and all four host nations and uh, to be uh, how proud we were of seeing our leaders sitting up there with IOC members um, at the opening, and uh, just going on those things is just uh, just amazing. And our 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 our, our kids should, uh, I think they realize it. You know, there yeah. there's a lot of buzz around the community about the about the game now, and uh, and to see those uh, our our designs on the uniforms is is amazing. Okay, so have you played it? No, I don't play video games. What? I, um, I, I I'm going to try, though. Uh, <laughs> I watch my, I watch my uh, nephews and my nieces and everything there, so I'm, I'm definitely going to try the game. I, uh, uh, I'm an old Pac-Man uh, video Love game it. player. I'm not the... Uh, uh, I can't keep up with these young kids with the buttons, but I'll uh, I'll give her a whirl this time. <laughs> you know what? I'm with you on that one, but I think this one might be worth it, right, to check this one oh, out. 
Oh, 100%. I'm going to play it for sure. Okay, listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Okay, thanks for having us. Have a good day. You too. That's Wayne Sparrow, chief of the Musqueam, talking about their collaboration with uh, EA Sports, this new FIFA 23 video game, which was developed primarily at EA Vancouver, has recognized the history, heritage, and culture of the Musqueam by incorporating artwork and assets from Musqueam artists in its new edition. It is so cool. If you get a chance to check out some of the artwork and the pictures and the jerseys and the choices that players can make, what they want to wear, what's in the game, it is just Amazing. And I can't even imagine how exciting it would be for kids, you know, Indigenous kids to see that and how it's reflected there. And I think that's a game changer. It really is. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you heard the big news this morning that after more than two years, our COVID-19 border rules are coming to an end. So what does that mean for you, especially if you're traveling through YVR in the next week or so? Well, for more on that, we're joined now by Mike McEnany, who's the VP of Chief External Affairs Officer for YVR. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what's the reaction like for your neck of the woods this morning? Uh, it's a very happy reaction overall, and I think it's it's obviously a very good piece of news for for travelers but also uh, frontline staff and uh, the broader the broader community okay so what does this mean for travelers is the airport prepared if there's an increase in travelers as a result so there's i'll I'll, I'll might take the last uh, part of that question quickly Uh, in terms of increase we are certainly seeing increased passenger numbers here we're at about 85 percent of our 2019 volumes uh, and for domestic travel, actually, we are above our 2019 volumes. Uh, in terms of what's going to occur then as of October 1st, the most obvious thing that travelers are going to see is the removal of the mask mandate. And of course, if if someone is more comfortable traveling with masks, by all means, continue to wear masks, both for passengers and certainly our employees here. We're giving that same message. But you'll see the removal of the mask mandate. The other piece to it then will be travelers will not need to have the... the the totality of information that they have had to have in the past about their vaccination status and submitting all that information electronically, both uh, to their air carrier and to the federal government. So all those measures go away. And we are certainly anticipating that it's going to make for a, a much smoother and overall enjoyable travel experience. All right. Is there a staffing concern here at all? Or is the airport, do you think, have that covered? Well, in terms of staffing, one of the things that we are certainly hoping folks will continue to do, and you heard in the announcement today from the federal government that the Arrive Can app is not going to be mandatory. And that is the the removal, of course, of the health information that was being supplied through the Arrive Can app. That information no longer needs to be supplied. But the Arrive Can app has a great utility in enabling a passenger to submit in advance their customs and immigration information before they get to the customs hall, which will absolutely speed up their processing through the customs hall. And as we have seen all these, these various staffing issues and where you've seen primarily at other airports internationally uh, where processing has gotten backed up and, and chunked up. What you have seen is massive use of digitization and innovation. And we've been doing a lot of things here at YBR to deal with those issues. So we are certainly hoping people will continue to use digital processing that is in place. Some of it was augmented and strengthened as a result of the pandemic procedures. And we, we hope folks will not uh, will not uh, remove themselves from following and utilizing that digitized process and path. Okay, so you're saying there are some things that we might keep because it can still speed things along. It can absolutely speed things along, yes. Okay. Now, the other thing is about when is all this going to take effect? We've heard that this starts on Saturday, but are you concerned that between now and then people might think, oh, no, I don't have to do it anymore? 
certainly concerned that folks will think they do not have to do it. And we will be through our, our, our signage here at the airport uh, and through <laughs> interviews such as this, reminding people that, yes, it does not go into effect until October 1. And until that time, all the processes and procedures that we've had to, to utilize over the past two years are still fully in effect. Okay, you were mentioning your passenger loads right now. So the capacity sounds like it has been good. Are you expecting that to increase as we head towards the holiday travel season? We are expecting to increase and overall expecting it to, to, to stay quite strong. And with the measures now coming and being changed as of October 1, uh, in all likelihood, you're going to see more people who are interested in travel. So what we need to do, not just why we are, but as, a, as an overall industry, we need to continue to keep working both with federal government, with departments and agencies, uh, with air carriers, etc., to try and make the process for the passenger as seamless as possible, uh, make use of digitization as much as possible, and overall be prepared and able to address challenges when they arrive. We have been using YVR staff throughout the pandemic to to the full degree we can to assist with uh, passenger screening, et cetera, but there's obviously only certain things we can do as an airport uh, versus the legal requirement of the federal agencies that carry out those responsibilities. So all that coordination and work still needs to continue apace. All right, so then Mike, what do people need to know about this announcement this morning? So what you need to know is that uh, all the rules and procedures that you have become accustomed to over the past two years will disappear with respect to COVID measures will disappear uh, as of October 1. Uh, And if you wish to continue wearing a mask, by all means, please continue to do so, whatever your your personal comfort level is. Uh, In terms of the data and information that you've been compiling in terms of your vaccination status, etc., that information will no longer be required. All right. Well, thank you so much for that update this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. Mike McEnany, who's the VP and Chief External Affairs Officer for YVR. Of course, the airports are pretty happy hearing the news from the federal government this morning that you will no longer be required to have a mask, vaccine mandate, um, you know, arrive can app. All of that is going to change as of Saturday. If you're traveling between now and Saturday, though, the rules still apply. So check with the airport before you head out there. This is Mornings with Simi. 